Thank, thank you, worship team. Whoa, I'm, I'm loud today. You guys can be seated. Yeah, I don't like hearing my voice that loud, so all right. Thank you, worship team, and Twyla, especially for leading today, too. And And I got to say, I've, in my seminary class, some of you know I'm an adjunct professor at a seminary, and I've been teaching a class this week on, uh, on using teams. So, Hunter, thank you for also demonstrating how, so it's a great example of uh, bringing people into leadership and that kind of stuff. And guys, we want to get more of you on St. Chong. Thank you for your testimony, too. That meant a lot, and so I appreciate that. And you didn't seem scared at all, so uh, might have to have you, you know, if, Next time I get sick, I might call you up and have you preach for me instead then, all right? So, just on short notice. Well, guys, it's great to be back here. Some of you know I was not feeling well on Easter, um, so um, I'm feeling much, much better today. So, it's not the church that's making me sick, okay? So, we know that now. So, but I'm glad you guys are here, and we're going to get back looking at Acts again today. Uh, we've, uh, we've been off and on through that journey, but through several things that have happened, we've had to depart from it for a little bit. So we're going to look back at how they expanded the mission of what they were doing. So, um, sorry, I'm a little bit of a, a Star Wars, you know, sci-fi kind of freak. So I, when I think of mission, I think of like mission to Mars and that kind of stuff. So that's the, the graphic up there. Um, again, for those of you who are guests here, I'm the interim. So the, the, hopefully the next pastor they call will be a normal, all right? And you won't have to deal with this kind of stuff. But uh, as we go back, since it's been a while since we've looked at Acts, let's kind of go back and look at previously on the Acts of the Apostles. So kind of review that for just a moment, what we've seen already in the Acts of the Apostles. So in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus gave his mission to his disciples. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts chapter 2, we saw the church reach the, the known world at that point through, at, the, at the time of Pentecost. Also in chapter 2, we saw what it looked like to be a healthy church in Jerusalem and all the things they did to be a healthy church. Uh, then in chapters 3 and 4, we saw the first suggestions of persecution that they would face. And we're going to see a little bit of more of that as we move in today. So all this is setting us up. I mean, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, really lays out a great story of the expansion of the early church. In fact, we call the book the Acts of the Apostles, but I think a better name for it would be the Acts of the Church or the Acts of the Holy Spirit is really what's going on here. So um, back in the, so there we are. In Acts chapter 6, what was the last uh, thing we looked at? We saw the, how they uh, expanded their leadership to include the Hellenistic Jews. Those are people who were raised Jewish but grew up in a Greek culture. So they were not ones that, uh, that, that worshipped at the temple. They were ones that worshipped in synagogues, in, in Greek lands, far away from Jerusalem. But it helped them, uh, it, it actually expanded their ministry out to people that were, were not like you know, central Jewish people, but people in, you know, that were living in a different culture, but were still Jewish. So that gets us, we're going to be in chapter 8 today, <clears throat> but before we get to that, I want to kind of back up a little bit, and we're skipping chapter 7, mainly because it's a, it's a long sermon by one of, the, um, one of the new Hellenistic leaders named Stephen, and got him killed for it. He was the first martyr. So um, there's a lot of great stuff in there. We're not skipping because it's not important. But because my time is limited with you, I want to kind of get to some other things here. So, but let's back out to chapter 7 for just a moment. Um, and actually, even a little bit further, back in chapter 6, when Stephen was called to, as to be what we now call the deacons. That's not what they were called at that point. But in, in um, I believe it's in chapter, let's see, chapter 6, I think verses 9 and 10, it says this. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. 
including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, why do I want to focus on those verses? It's really important. Because as you look at that, all right, when you think about of the early church leaders, can you think of anybody in the book of Acts that was a freeborn Roman citizen? Okay, that was, let's take a look at the, 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 that area of freedmen right there is really important, okay? Okay, hit it again. I think we've got to put a circle around that so you can see it there. There we go. Maybe that's not showing up real well, but the, the freedmen, all right, there was a leader. And this leader was actually grew up in, in an area called Tarsus, which was in the area of Cilicia. See, it says, and some from Cilicia and Asia. You guys might know, this is the guy we later know as Paul. And a lot of the book of Acts is about him. Now, we don't know this for sure, but in my imagination, Stephen, when he started as this Hellenistic Jewish leader, began to preach the gospel of Jesus, he went to the synagogue of the freedmen and said they were unable to, to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And in my imagination, this is probably where Paul would have worshipped when he came to Jerusalem. And I can imagine that Paul was one of the guys that was arguing with Stephen and could not win. And we know a little bit from Paul's background that he shares in, other, in some of his letters he wrote that it must have just eat him up inside. In fact, it gets to the point that a little bit later, when Stephen gets stoned, it says that Paul was uh, agreed with putting Stephen to death. So as this guy Stephen, this Hellenistic leader, they had expanded their mission, their leadership to include these Hellenistic leaders. And one of these guys began arguing about Jesus. And Paul couldn't handle it. He was in hearty agreement with putting them to death. So what happened after that? It says, uh, in, continuing on in sh uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now remember, we said Jesus' mission was them. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Judea and Samaria... And so it says, devout men carried, uh, buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. However, Saul was ravaging the church, and he would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. Now, the persecution we'd seen of the church up to this point was just sort of random. It was sort of reactive persecution. But now, this guy Paul, who probably had been bested by Stephen in these arguments, just is furious against the church and starts actively hunting down Christians and dragging them off to be put in prison or to be put to death. Now, that's our background. So we're going to get to our, to our main passage here in just a moment, all right? So just a, a little more introduction here before we pray and get to, our, get to our passage. So we've already mentioned, like in Acts 8.1, that's that new phase of moving to Judea and Samaria. But why did this persecution jump up? Because this is really a big deal about how the church moved out. Why did they start finding this act of persecution? I think there's a couple of reasons see at this time when the book of acts was written or or, or or this part of the book of acts christianity was still a subset of judaism most people felt like that jewish was just another flavor that christian was just another flavor of judaism sort of like um you know if you're um well our church's background is independent fundamental baptist church okay we don't talk about that a lot but but I think, but you've got, you've got Southern Baptists and National Baptists and American Baptists and Two Seed in the Spirit, Holiness Baptists. I don't even know who they are, but I know that they're there. Okay, there's like seven churches around the nation. But there's all different flavors of Baptists. So Judaism, uh, Christianity was just considered another flavor of Judaism. 
In fact, to become Christian, you really had to be Jewish to be Christian at that point. But these Hellenistic Jewish people get into the church and they start leading. And I think it freaked out some of the other Jewish leaders like, whoa, wait a second. If we let these Hellenistic people start leading and they start going to these other synagogues, they start witnessing all these people from all these other places, then we're going to have all kinds of non-Jewish people come here and who knows what this church is going to look like. Now that may seem sort of silly today, but I actually hear that in churches. You know, I work with a lot of different churches. And many of you know that in my background, I've served in some churches of some of different, um, uh, what would be called an immigrant church now. I think that's the current PC term. So a church that has mainly people from another country and still reflects some of the culture of that other country. And so I've served in several immigrant churches. And one of the immigrant churches, and again, I'm sorry, that, I know that's a vague term, but that's sort of the, that is the PC term now. And as an old white guy, I try to be PC because if I'm not, I'm going to get in trouble for it, all right? But, um, <clears throat> but in one of these PC churches, uh, one of these immigrant churches, I was meeting with some leaders from some other immigrant churches of the same culture. And so I was the only white guy around all these people from a different culture. And one of the leaders from one of the churches actually in front of me said, how can you have a white guy leading this church? He said, if you have a white guy leading this church, that's going to open the church to all different other kinds of people. And then he said, and if we start having all different kinds of cultures come there, what are we going to have at church dinners? The dumbest thing I think I've ever heard a church leader ever say, but he literally said that. Like, and I was like, you do realize that, that your people eat pizza sometimes, right? You know, so it's not going not gonna to really damage your church to have somebody from an Italian background to be in your church. But now, fortunately, that didn't lead to persecution. But in this case, in the book of Acts, it did, all right? So, but reaching all kinds of people is what we're going to talk about today. It's what the Jewish leaders feared, and it's exactly what happened in the early church. So, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we trace the movement of your people and their mission, help us to see through your word, your hand of guidance on them, and also your hand of guidance on us as we do our part of your mission that the world may know about Jesus. Thank you, Father, for these words, for this congregation, and for this day to worship you and study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now we're going to look at verse 8. We're going to skip around a few things in, in chapter 8 here, I mean. But uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through uh, 8 right now. And we're going to look how the gospel expanded to what the Jewish people considered outsiders. People who were outside, just, just didn't fit into the mold at all. So what happens is Stephen has now died, and Luke turns his attention to another person of those, those Hellenistic leaders that were chosen in, in chapter 6. This guy was, was named Philip. So in verse 4, it picks up, So those who were scattered through Judea and Samaria on their way, went on their way preaching the word. Now that's important. They were fleeing persecution, but they were sharing Jesus wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Now, if you know anything about Bible, uh, about the Holy Land um, area, on your, our maps, it looks like Samaria is up from Jerusalem, okay? Because we usually think of north as being up. But in the Jewish thought, Jerusalem was up and everything was down from Jerusalem. So whenever you left Jerusalem, no matter which direction you went, you went down. That's the way they looked at it. So he went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And as they listened and saw the signs he was performing for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great 
joy in that city. Now, this was a big step for the gospel because the disciples are scattered all over the place and Luke focuses on Philip, probably because Philip went to Samaria, which was a big no-no. I mean, in Jewish thought, Samaria was the ghetto to beat all ghettos right there. It was the place where you didn't want to be. And here's the reason for this, okay? Um, is that, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I always get ahead of myself in the notes here. Let's back up a little bit, okay? Let's just keep going and explain. I'll come to that in a moment. I'm just getting, sorry, I get excited about this stuff when I look at the stuff and I want to get ahead of myself, which you could, Jackie's probably praying I'll get ahead of myself so I'll be quicker, right? So just let them pages stick together, Lord, so we can get it quicker. All right. Um, so we don't have time to go into all the stuff that happened in Samaria, but here's a quick summary. The Holy Spirit blessed what Philip was doing, and many people followed Jesus. And you'll see in that story there was one guy, a magician, who, was, who wanted to become a, a believer. Now, we don't know if he was a magician like magicians today. He just fooled people. Some of you guys have seen me do some magic tricks before, and it's just trickery. It's just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deceiving you in some way by, by hiding a ball or, or you know, uh, moving a card when you're not looking or something like that. Maybe he was that kind of magician, or maybe he had an actual connection with evil spirits. We don't know for sure, but it really doesn't matter for the story. But so these things are happening, and they hear about it. So Peter and John, two of the leaders who were apostles, decide to go to Samaria to see what God's doing there. Now, we don't know for sure. It doesn't sound like they went up there to check it out to make sure everything was happening properly. It could have been some of that, but it looks like mainly they were going to bless it and to help out. Have you guys heard about this revival that was happening last month at Ashbury College in, in Kentucky? I knew of a lot of people that traveled there, some to check it out and see if it was real. Some who just wanted to be blessed by it. Others who went there to, to help, that kind of thing. It's that same kind of thing there. So something is happening. The Spirit is doing something in Samaria. And, and so they wind up going up there to see what's happening. And when they get there, they start laying hands on people and people receive the Holy Spirit. Now this isn't an important part of our message today, but I want to kind of touch on that. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see several times that the Holy Spirit made some really uh, visible um, uh, did some visible things to mark his presence there. And uh, so if you ask the question, why didn't they get the Holy Spirit when Philip preached, but they'd only got it when, when John and Peter came up there? I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't, it doesn't explain it. And lots of people have come up with different ex explanations. Here's the best one I can figure out. Several times in the book of Acts, you're going to see things of where it says the Holy Spirit fell on somebody or miracles happened or people spoke in tongues sometimes. You see it at Pentecost, you see it here. We're gonna see it a little bit later in Acts chapter 10 with a guy named Cornelius. It happens later in Ephesus. So, but whenever the Bible, uh, in the book of, Luke, book of Acts, it talks about that. Sometimes it mentions the Holy Spirit, sometimes it mentions miracles, sometimes it mentions baptism, sometimes it mentions laying on of hands, but it doesn't mention all of those in every story. Some stories will mention one, once another story will mention a different one. And when it mentions more than one, it's not always in the same order. Sometimes people get the Holy Spirit after they're baptized. Sometimes they, they get the Holy Spirit, then they decide to get baptized. So all I can tell you is the book of Acts doesn't have a formula for how the Holy Spirit reacts to somebody becoming a Christian. So we can't get from that. You may become a Christian and, man, nothing else changed except you feel the, the weight of sin lifted from your life. And, and man, that, that does not, just because you didn't feel anything else does not mean you didn't become a Christian at that point. If in your heart you acknowledge Jesus is Lord and you yield your life to him, you said, Lord, I, I know my sins put, put your son on the cross. 
God, I understand that. And I accept that sacrifice that Jesus made for me, and I want to now let Jesus be Lord of my life. Then that's what it takes right there. Because Jesus has already done it on the cross. All you have to do is accept it. Now, maybe somebody else does it, and man, just things change around. Their, their whole attitude changes, or they get healed in some way. I remember a young lady um, at a camp I was doing one time, when she became a Christian, the weight of sin in her life, and she was an eighth grader, but just so you could tell there was so much, she, after she became a Christian, she looked like a different person. I'm, I'm being literal about that. You see that sometimes, but that's, that's unusual. So in the book of Acts, it only mentions a few times where the, where the Holy Spirit does something, and usually it's when there's a big expansion, that God's opening up a new, uh, a new way of doing it. And one of the ways I, sorry, Jack, I picked on you. Okay, you're getting picked on all the time now, all right, for this. But, um, but like if, if aliens landed here, you know, and we start trying to figure out, well, did Jesus die for the aliens too? There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. And so one of the ways that God could show that he, that Jesus was the way of salvation for these aliens too, don't think about this too much, okay, because it hadn't happened, and it's probably going to happen in our lifetime, but if it ever does, we'll let theologians worry about it at that point. But if God wanted to demonstrate that, that if an alien said, well, I, I want this gift of Jesus too, I, I believe, I've sinned, I know things that, and then when he did it, he started speaking in tongues, or he got healed, or something like that, that might be a way of the Holy Spirit saying, see, I'm opening up this door, this, this one too, all right? So that's what happened there. So Philip goes up to Samaria, and there were some, probably some people there that thought, Samaritans, they can't become believers, but the Holy Spirit said, ah. Let me put my stamp of approval on this and show. So that's what that was all about at that time. That's actually longer than I meant to go on that, but I thought it was important. So um, uh, all I'm trying to say is there's not a specific formula, okay? So, but here's what's going on, is they moved up to Samaria. It's about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. So all the stuff that they'd been doing here in the Bible, it's that blue circle, if you can see, it's this little blue dot there, that's Jerusalem. And so they moved up about 40 miles to Samaria. Now, that was a good long way because they didn't have cars at that point. So it was a major extension of the gospel geographically. But it was also an extension of the gospel demographically. Because some of you know this already, so bear with me if you know this, but Samaritans were considered half-Jews, and they were despised for that. Because what happened about 500 years earlier, when the Assyrians, the Assyrian kingdom destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They took some of the best people away and they brought in other people. So they left some Jewish people there, but they brought in people from other parts of their empire. That was a typical way of doing it. And those Jewish people who stayed there intermarried with people from other countries. And so for that, they were considered half Jewish. Now, somebody living in Samaria might be full Jewish or might be no Jewish at all, but just all of Samaria was considered half Jewish. And it was considered an unclean area. In fact, if you look at in John chapter 4, you have the story of the woman at the well. It was a Samaritan woman, and people looked down on Jesus because he was talking to the Samaritan woman. In fact, John even says the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, in Luke 10, he tells the story of the good Samaritan. You know, so we look at that and go, like, Samaritans, that sounds good, huh? My son was born at Good Samaritan Hospital in San Jose, and we think of that as good. But Jesus picked the Samaritan as the hero of the story to tell people, you don't know who your neighbor is. They're people that you despise that God's actually using in some way, and you need to help them. And so he used the story of the Good Samaritan to basically say, you know what? They're people too, and they're people that, that, that God created and God loves. So there's a lot, there was a lot of stuff about Samaritans there. In fact, if you look back, 
uh, let's jump back to the map real quick, okay? I'm going to ask you to move back real quick. So look at this. Up there you see Galilee up at the top there. If you're online, I'm sorry, you may not be able to see this, but Galilee is up there by the Sea of Galilee, and then Jerusalem is that area of Judea, and Samaria is right in the middle. A Jewish person traveling from Galilee, which was a Jewish area where Jesus, was, you know, where Jesus lived and had a lot of his ministry, traveling down to Judea would not travel through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River and go into a totally secular part on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River and go all the way down the east side of the Jordan River and then cross back over the Jordan River to go to Jerusalem so that they wouldn't go through Samaria. That's how bad they despised it. And so these were true. So we can go back to the other slide we had before. These were truly outsiders. So it was a big, huge demographic expansion there. But it didn't just stop there. So all this happens, and the Holy Spirit puts a stamp and says, these half-Jewish people, they're part of the kingdom too. They're part of what Jesus died for here. But the gospel keeps spreading further. The gospel expands not just to outsiders, but in Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel expanding to outlanders, people who lived even far, further that way. We're going to skip down to verse 25 here. And in verse 25, it says, So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem. That's talking about Peter and John. And preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I think that's really cool for us to notice right there first that Peter and John go up to check out what's going on in Samaria and they realize what God's doing, that on the way back, they stopped at every village in Samaria and preached the gospel. So the cat was out of the bag. The gospel had broken, broken through. Samaritans everywhere were learning all about Jesus now because of what Philip did and what the Holy Spirit did in Samaria there. So they were preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, Philip also left. We're going to see that in a moment. Now you can say, well, what happened in Samaria there? Well, I'm sure there were believers that still preached. I mean, it, now it was, it was realized, boy, the Samaritans can be a part of this Christian stuff. Let's preach to them. And a lot of Samaritans already knew about Jesus because, well, when Jesus spent time with people at the story of the woman at the well, it said many people had already believed in Jesus in Samaria. The church was just catching up to what Jesus had already done. So let's pick back up with Philip. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. He said, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem, remember, down from Jerusalem, to Gaza. And then he puts this parenthetical expression, this was a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. And we actually find out the passage he's reading is the same passage we looked at on Good Friday. It's the passage about the suffering servant. That up to this time, nobody had really applied to Jesus. But when Philip sees him reading this, the Holy Spirit helps Philip see, hey, that suffering servant, that's, that's about Jesus. Because that even says, hey, help me understand this. Is, is, is the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? And he says, let me tell you, he's really talking about Jesus. And so he shares, with Je shares about Jesus there in verse 28. We're going to skip through that passage because we looked at it at Good Friday, but down to verse 35, it says, And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. So on to verse 36 now. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? 
So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing, back down to Ethiopia. And Philip appeared in Azotus, which is actually the old city of Ashdod near Gaza, and he was traveling and preaching to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So, now, by the way, if you're looking at another, we use the Christian Standard Bible just as our, our basic version we use here. If you're using old, the King James or some of those others, you may have seen a verse 37 that didn't appear here. So I want to take another parenthetical thing to look at. If your translation had a verse 37 that said something like this, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So why isn't it in our translation? Don't freak out. Nobody's trying to take verses away from the Bible. But one of the things scholars try to do, this again is a sideline to our passage, but I want to explain this, especially if you're, if you're new to this stuff, why some translations read a little differently. Uh, it looks like we can best tell. We've gone back and researched, not me personally, but people who do this for a living, research the oldest manuscripts we have. And the, the Bible is the best attested, documented, ancient manuscript anywhere. There are thousands and thousands of pieces of, of parchment that were less than 100 years old, you know, uh, less than 100 years after Jesus died. But like uh, Homer's book, The Iliad, there's only like eight manuscripts of that, and the oldest of them was, was about 500 years after Homer wrote it. You know, and nobody goes, well, well, you don't know if that's really what he wrote or not. But people really study to try to figure out what did Luke actually write that verse 37 in it. And it looks like probably he didn't, but some scribe a little bit later read this and says, and the, and, the, and the eunuch said, what keeps me from being baptized? And so they stopped and baptized him and said, well, he didn't say he believed in Jesus, but surely he did. So he probably, wrote, he probably had heard a story somewhere else, so he probably wrote in the margin of this manuscript, he was church, you know, and the guy accepted Jesus, so they baptized him. And then some later scribe went, oh, that note, it goes here, and so it wound up being in there. So it doesn't change the story any, but don't freak out at it. Just remember, scholars are always trying to figure out what was the most accurate rendition of what Luke actually wrote at that point, okay? <coughs> and some translations choose to include it, and some don't, and the one that we happen to use doesn't include it. It doesn't mean it's more liberal or anything. It just means um, they follow this tradition of manuscripts rather than another, all right? That was probably more information you needed, but I felt like I had to be honest about that, okay? Huh? Okay, so I wanted you to know why it was there, so nobody was questioning, you know, we're trying to pull a fast one on here by messing with Scripture. All right, so where was I? Okay, so we're looking back at this. Uh, so once the gospel had been firmly established in Samaria, both the apostles and the Philips, Philip leave. Okay, the apostles head back to Jerusalem, they keep preaching the gospel, but Philip goes down toward Gaza, and that's the old Philistine city of Gaza. And you might know it, it's down by this, along the seashore, you might know it in the news from hearing about the Gaza Strip, because it is a Palestinian area, and there's sometimes shelling between the Gaza Strip and, and uh, Judea, so, uh, you know, uh, Israel. So that happens a lot, so you know about the Gaza Strip there. And it's about 50 miles away from Jerusalem, so a little bit further than Samaria, so it's, it's expanding on. Um, but it would be the normal route that somebody coming from Jerusalem, going to Ethiopia, would, would travel. Um, by the way, this isn't what we normally think of as Ethiopia today. The old kingdom of Ethiopia was right about between, uh, on the border of Egypt and Sudan today. It was the old kingdom of Ethiopia, and the queen 
her name wasn't Candace. That was the title they used for the, for the queen at that point. And this was a high official. He was like the uh, Secretary of the Treasury at that point. So he was the Alexander Hamilton. Wasn't Alexander Hamilton Secretary of Treasury? I never saw Hamilton. Anybody see Hamilton? Is that what he was, Secretary of Treasury? All right, so he was Alexander Hamilton of that day, all right? I probably shouldn't have said that. Make a note. Don't, don't say those things, all right? Just cross that out. All right, but this was more than just a 50-mile jump. This was the point that it jumped out of the Middle East over to another continent, to Ethiopia. And Ethiopia in the Roman Empire that day was not the furthest part of the Roman Empire, but it was considered the border of civilization. It was about 1,700 miles from Rome. And so Christians, who were, or people that day who were part of the Roman Empire, knew that the Roman Empire ended in Ethiopia. This went out of the empire. This went to somewhere else. This was totally different. This was out in the wildlands. This was, this was my goodness. This was, well, for those of you my age that heard of, this was going to Africa. You know, that was like the ultimate thing. God's called you to ministry. Was he called you to Africa? Well, maybe one day you'll make it to that level. You know, that kind of thing. This was, in fact, this was Africa. All right, so anyway, is there, I just, that just hit me. It actually was Africa. All right, so the remotest part of civilization, 1,700 miles from Rome, and what the gospel, what Luke is saying at this point, if the gospel can break out of the Roman Empire and make it to Ethiopia, it can go anywhere. This was amazing. This was, this was revolutionary. That it wasn't just a Jewish thing. It was going to be for everybody. Now, we don't get that today because we have air travel and we have the internet. You know, it's possible. Some of you this week have had a conversation. Oh, no, Anna, you do sometimes. You're talking to people in other countries all over the place, aren't you, all the time? And it's like no big deal. You just got to remember what time it is there is the only, the only thing you got to worry about. So talking to people in other countries is not, is not a big deal. But to them, that was, that was so far away. That could have been Jupiter for all they knew at that point. For it's so, so far away. But we still need to remember, just because that our world seems smaller, it's still a world that needs to know about Jesus. And that should be important to us because you know what? Fresno Church is basically a church of outlanders. I'm in this room right now. We've got people in this room right now who have historical, familial, historical connections to Southeast Asia, to Korea, to Mexico, to Africa, to South Asia, and many other places, all right? Many, many other places, to the Philippines, to, to all sorts of places around here. I don't even know what all countries are represented here, but there, there are many of them I know. And we're a church of outlanders. And you say, well, Daryl, but you're a white guy, you know? You were, you were I mean, there's nothing interesting. I had one of those DNA tests one time my kids gave me. I am so white, people. I should not even be allowed in Taco Bell. I am so white. I mean, that is, it is, I need a license to drink chocolate milk. That is like how white I am, okay? I wish there was something else in there, all right? But there is not. Um, but you know what? Even though I'm just like, like basically, we're all outlanders. Because unless I'm missing my guess, I don't think there's anybody in this room that grew up in a place that the early Christians even knew existed. Where we were all raised, the early Christians didn't have any idea about it. We were even further outlanders than the Ethiopian was. And so Fresno Church needs to remember it's a church of outlanders. And we need to be open to outlanders anywhere anytime 
But that, even that's not the biggest part of the story. There's one more part. It not only went to, to uh, outsiders, the gospel not only went to outlanders, but the gospel went to outcasts. And we're going to go back. It's just one verse we're going to focus on there. Acts 8.27 talks about this guy, this guy that we're looking at, that says that he was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. That's a really important thing there because up till this point, the gospel went to Hellenists. Some of them were even what's called proselytes. They had converted to Judaism, like Nicholas was one of those new leaders that they had. Some of the people were Samaritans that were half Jewish. But this man, this Ethiopian man, even though he was coming back from Jerusalem to worship, this man would never, ever have been allowed to be a part of the Jewish community. He would never have been able to convert to Judaism. You know, when you look at those Hellenist Jews, they became Jewish to become Christian. When you look at the Samaritans, they were half Jewish to become Christian. And any other Ethiopian could have eventually become Jewish. They had to go through a process of circumcision and baptism and almsgiving, a little bit of study, that kind of stuff, uh, that to, to become Jewish eventually. They would, they would be called a proselyte. But this guy, this Ethiopian, this particular man, the best he could ever hope for would be to be what they called a God-fearer. And a God-fearer was sort of a term they used for like a Gentile that liked God and God might be okay with, but never Jewish. And not even a second-class citizen, a third or fourth or fifth-class part of the Jewish community. He would never be allowed to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant, you know, the chosen people that they consider themselves. Why? Because he was an Ethiopian? No, it wasn't that. It was a cause he was a eunuch. Because he was a eunuch, that was the big deal. I want you to look at what Deuteronomy 23.1 says. It says, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Um, if any children are watching, ask your parents what that means, okay? That's all I can say. But, um, but basically, because he was a eunuch, the Jewish people would consider him never able to be fully Jewish. Up to this time, everybody who'd become a Christian could still be, have adopted into Judaism if they'd wanted to. The church could have still said, yeah, we're still, still kind of Jewish. But at this moment, Christianity took its first steps towards breaking away from Judaism. Now, we still owe a lot to Judaism. That's still our, our history of our faith. Even though most of us in here were never Jewish, probably didn't have a lot of Jewish relatives. I don't know, you have any Jewish relatives? All right, I don't either. But um, some of you might. But even though most of us didn't, this was the moment right here the church had to accept that you don't have to be Jewish to become Christian. This guy who could never be Jewish could now become a believer. This was the first step of Christianity doing what Luke wrote about in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was born and he recorded the angels saying that the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy which will be for all people, for everyone. So here's what I want for us for our takeaway here. What 
where is God going to direct us for our next phase of our mission? That's something that the pastor search team is dealing with because we're looking for a pastor who's going to help us go to that next phase, whatever it is. And the church had to face that. It took persecution to get them to Samaria. It took the angel with a direct command to get Philip down to talk to this Ethiopian. All right? And just as God moved them, and they didn't have any idea what he was doing, but they had to be ready for what God was doing next. And as we're entering in this part where we're starting to, going to be looking for a pastor very soon, I want the church to be praying and asking God, <coughs> excuse me, God, whatever it is you want our church to do next, whoever it is you want us to reach, whatever kind of church you want us to be, God, that's who we want to be. We want to have the same part of the mission that these people did in the book of Acts. We want to be open to whatever it is. And God, it may be a wild ride. Father, we may wish it was like it's a small world at Disneyland, but it might be Space Mountain or some other bizarre roller coaster somewhere that God's taking us on. But God, wherever it is, we're going along for the ride with you. I've got one last story to leave you with before we get to our, to our decision time. And uh, it's one that, it's a secular one, but it's something you'll all relate to, okay? You know, the, do you guys recognize this logo here? Let's see. All right? Okay? That's the original logo of Starbucks right there. Um, I know it's a, it's a weird-looking logo, and I almost didn't use it, but I want to talk about Starbucks when they first started. Okay? When they first started, they opened their first store in 1971. Okay? That was in Seattle. And would you believe it, at that time they sold only coffee beans, raw coffee beans, they sold tea leaves, and they sold spices. In fact, uh, that's why I show this logo, because it says coffee, tea, spices. That's what they sold. You could not walk into Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. They didn't have it. They didn't want to sell you one. They weren't interested in it. And, but at one point they realized people started wanting samples. So they started figuring out, well, how are we going to sell coffee? Well, the trouble is they didn't roast coffee even. So what they were doing, they, were, they actually had to come down and study at Pete's Coffee in Berkeley. And they studied there for several months about how to roast coffee. And their first roasted coffee they served, they got from Pete's. So they would ship their coffee beans out somewhere, but they would get roasted coffee beans from Pete's. In fact, you could not get, you could not buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks until 1982, their 11th year of existence. And... Uh, you couldn't get an espresso drink until 1984. So now we're all thinking, I mean, Starbucks is synonymous with coffee now, right? I know there's a few of you spiritual here that Cup of Joy is synonymous with coffee, and that's all right, okay? But, but for, 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 for most of those heathen out there, those, those, those un, unwashed masses of unsaved people, Starbucks is that thing of coffee right there. But remember, when they started, that wasn't it. But now they've become cornering the star. They're synonymous with coffee because they made the shift when they needed to. We as a church need to be ready. Now, maybe this next shift God has for us won't be dramatic. It won't be anything like that. God's probably not going to ask us to pick up our church and move everybody to, you know, some place where nobody loves Jesus, like Sacramento or something like that, okay? I, I forgot. It's not all politicians there, so there are some Christians there. So, um, Anyway, but God's not going to do something dramatic with us with that, but, but he might. All I want you to do is to be ready for that. Okay, let's get that. I don't even like that logo. Get that off there, okay? So let's talk about what you can do here. Just a few things I want to think about here. All right, so 
First thing, I want you to pray for your mission. Pray for the mission that God is, uh, is he extends our, our church's mission in new directions. Be praying that we'll be open to that, whatever it is. Pray that we'll be open to whatever new direction God has for your ministry also. Not just our church's ministry, but our church's ministry in new directions, your own ministry in new directions, wherever it may be. And then start thinking about what your Samaria is, what your next step is, okay? Go ahead and put those up there, okay? And think about who are your outsiders? Who are the people that you know that are similar to us but not reached yet? It may be family members, co-workers, neighbors. What about the outlanders? People who are so distant from us, maybe geographically, maybe culturally. Now our church, in fact, if you're a guest here, I want you to know this is a missions-oriented church. In fact, we're going to get an update on missions today, so I need to wrap up on that. And we support about a dozen missionaries. And uh, we're really big on that. You, when you give your tithes and offerings to our church, a good portion of that, about 10%, goes, to, goes directly to missionaries. We don't take any of that before we, that, they get that before we pay for the bills, before we get my salary, all that kind of stuff. That our church is big on missions, but as individuals need to be big on missions also. Who are those people out there that, that are just so different from us, geographically or demographically, we need to reach? And then let's think about the outcasts the people that aren't reached by anybody, but God is gonna lead us to reach. So the question today is, are we ready for our Samaria? Whatever it is God has for us individually and as a church, let's pray. Father, just thank you for the excitement, the, just the, the amazing things that happened with the early church. God, I am so, I, I just, as I read it, I'm so encouraged by, amazed by your love, amazed by your strategy, amazed by your guidance for your people. And Father, I ask for that same guidance for our church. Father, I ask that each one of us here, individually and collectively as a church, would really know what you want us to do next. Did you prepare us, Father, for that next shift? Father, we want to have our part in your mission, not for our glory, Father, but for yours. You have blessed us with so much as a church. Now, Father, we collectively yield it to you for your glory and that the world may know that Jesus saves. Amen.